Welcome, everyone, to The Impact, a sustainable CT podcast for your edification, your enlightenment, and your entertainment, too. I'm Jim Hunt, your friendly neighborhood communications manager at Sustainable CT. Remember, this is never a one-way conversation. We always want to hear from you. Drop us a note, won't you, to info at sustainablect.org. The Impact is supported in part by the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation. The Tremaine Foundation seeks and funds innovative projects that advance solutions to basic and enduring problems. And we are oh so glad they do. Today we're bringing you a Sustainable CT Coffee Hour that was recorded on January 21, 2022. Remember, you can always join us for a virtual Cup of the Joe on the third Friday of each month. We share program updates and resources, explore your questions, and strengthen the network of Sustainable CT Champions. These sessions are always free and open to all, so get in on the action, be part of the conversation. Look for details on our training and events calendar at, you guessed it, sustainablect.org, of course. Today's discussion is led by the incomparable Alyssa Norwood, our project manager for certification and innovation. She's joined by Ashley Stewart, one of Sustainable CT's most excellent equity coaches and all-around fabulous human being. And by Latha Swamy, Director of Food Policy for the City of New Haven. Thank you, Latha. Together, they lead a compelling and informative conversation about engaging community members in the creation of municipal policy and actually compensating them for the benefit of their lived experience. What a concept. This is a great topic, folks. So give a listen and enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Happy 2022, if this is the first time I'm seeing you. For many of you, um, New Year's probably feels like a very long time ago, but to the extent that this is the first sustainable CT coffee hour of the year, it's an opportunity to celebrate new beginnings all over again, and we're so glad that you're here. My name is Alyssa Norwood. Uh, Many of you know me, but for those who don't, I'm a program manager with Sustainable CT. And I also want to recognize Ashley Stewart is a member of the Sustainable CT team, but we're going to hold on formal introductions for her because we're, we're thrilled that Ashley is one of our two speakers today. So when the appropriate time comes, she'll introduce herself. So on today's topic, Um, We're here to talk about compensation, and I think our story really begins um, with this narrative that I know I've internalized around the idea of engaging with municipal government as a privilege, Um, and it is. It's a story that's grounded in um, white men who were the founding fathers of the United States running government with tremendous privilege. Many of them were slave owners. Um, They lived in a time where there were gender roles such that um, responsibility for home, for, um, for caring for loved ones, whether children or aging parents or others in the family or the community largely fell to women. And it's that story that we've inherited. And I reflect um, on a couple of different aspects of my career. One, for those of you who don't know, I had a career in um, legislative advocacy and policymaking for a period of time and reflect on um, people, ordinary people who would come to the legislative office building early in the morning, spend hours waiting for the privilege of of speaking for three minutes. Um, So this conversation is really about beginning to examine that story, which many of us accept at face value and perhaps beginning to turn it on its head and not only questioning this idea um, and certainly engaging with municipal government is important. Um, You know, there are places in the world where people don't have the opportunity to engage in the democratic process. This conversation is in no way diminishing the privilege and the opportunity that comes with freedom. And of course we celebrate that, Um, but it is to question all of the presumptions that when someone shows up to engage in the democratic process, that it's not always easy. It presumes time, it presumes excess financial resources, it presumes transportation, it presumes the ability to engage comfortably and confidently in environments where there's a real power dynamic Um, And this whole story of it being a privilege for somebody to provide information to municipal government really minimizes the privilege um, of getting to listen to and witness and to beginning to think differently as municipal officials and municipal leaders about the privilege of listening, of witnessing, um, and the courage it takes for people to make themselves vulnerable and what it takes. And then going one step further to say, 
that what information is being shared is valuable um, and should perhaps be compensated. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that I, I also had a, a period of time in my life where I worked in the aging services world. And there's been a really remarkable shift from this notion that it's the inherent duty of family members to care for loved ones and that there are compensation models that are moving forward to say that if an individual um, has to leave work to care for an aging parent or loved one or partner, um, that in the same way we would compensate somebody for performing those services, that somebody within the family that has to make real personal sacrifice is also worthy of being compensated. So um, this is all a really innovative and in some cases very different way of thinking. So to shepherd us through this conversation, um, both with some grounding philosophies, and then also some real examples in Connecticut. We have two amazing speakers who are going to deliver their presentations. We'll encourage you to write down or otherwise type questions into the chat. We'll hold them all for the end of their presentation. And then we've reserved and held a lot of space for conversation on this topic. So um, Ashley Stewart and Latha Swami are our two speakers. And Ashley and Latha, if you could each introduce yourselves and then Ashley will have you start. Sure. My name is Ashley Stewart. I've met several of you all. I've been working with Sustainable Connecticut for a few years as an advisor and also as an equity coach. Um, my background is in all things municipal planning, engineering, project management. So I've seen a lot of different sides of, I guess, the municipal process, um, also as a volunteer within my town too. So I'm really excited to talk about um, this topic. It's close to my heart and I'm really happy that y'all came. Thank you. Uh, I'm Latha Swami. I'm the director of food policy for the city of New Haven. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that role in the division in just a bit. Um, so I come to this work with a varied background. I actually started off, um, I went to medical school and was doing a PhD in neuroscience and then I went to forestry school. But throughout all of those experiences, um, you know, centering the social aspect of, um, how we're doing our work, thinking about the people that are at the center of what we're doing and thinking about how what we should do should be people driven and also fairly compensated and recognized and honored. Um, so across all of those fields, uh, I think this theme of compensation and, and knowledge are important. And also quick disclaimer, I recently got a new puppy. I also have a cat. So I'm trying to manage some relations here. So apologies. Thank you. Okay, Ashley, take it away. One of the first things that I wanted to talk about with respect to compensation um, is that all towns struggle to get engagement like from residents. Every single town, whether you're a small town, a large town, the cities, the rural towns, the suburban towns, every town is struggling to engage with new residents and to pull people in. So to me, that says we need new approaches to engaging with new residents, um, which is one in one way to enter into this conversation. Um, what are the hurdles? Why are people not participating in their local government decisions, committees, volunteering? And to what Alyssa was talking about it earlier, let's actually start addressing some of those concerns. Um, often it is overlooked that municipal participants, the people that are volunteering, have an interest in, in the things that they're doing. So that interest might actually be equal to payment in some way. For example, you might see a business owner that participates in economic development. They are interested in the outcomes of the town. That interest is significant. And I think we overlook those examples because they're embedded in the system. Of course, this person with this interest should participate. But payment of someone with lived experience seems like a little bit of a gray or sticky area for towns. So I'm going to just basically rattle off a couple different 
areas to can talk about or we can talk about later. Hopefully it generates questions. We are in this moment in time where every town and hopefully all of your committees are thinking about how to engage with equity, how to be more democratic, um, how to improve your processes. And one of the things that I hope either from me or uh, or any of the conversation today uh, is that you take seriously that the value of engagement from people with lived experience is worth something. Um, that money and payment is a form of appreciation. And it is an acknowledgement that the content received from people with lived experience will be used in some way, in a valuable way. So uh, recently, Alyssa and I led a project with Sustainable Connecticut um, that we'd like to use as an example. And Alyssa, I'd love if you help me um, fill out this, this example, because sometimes my thoughts are scattered. But we engage with uh, a little under 20 people um, with lived experience in uh, trying to find or seek affordable housing here in the Hartford region. Those participants in, engaged in conversation with us for three sessions and each of the sessions we paid the participants. At the conclusion of the sessions, we received feedback from the participants about the payment process that some people said the payment was only an incentive. It didn't, they wanted to participate and the payment just made it so it wasn't a hurdle. Some people said the payment was really why they decided to participate and that they got so much from it that they want to continue. Um, so those are some of the feedbacks we got from people with lived experience in the affordable housing conversation. And for that example, um, am I missing anything, Alyssa, that I should no, those are those are the key points. I guess I'll put it in this container. So I don't I don't know if we have anyone from any of the five towns who participated in that project. Catherine, I think you might might be the only one. But um, West Hartford, Weathersfield, South um, Windsor, Avon, and Manchester. This five town collaborative decided um, that it was time to address this very outmoded model of I'm going to sit in my town hall, I'm going to wait for residents to show up, and I'm going to sit on high in this room that really invites a lopsided power dynamic and ask people to inform a process um, in a language and in a setting that might not elicit what's needed from the communities that as municipalities we most need to hear from. So those five towns all agreed one, and this is diverting a little bit from the compensation issue, but I think it's important because one of the barriers to compensation, of course, is cost. So to address that, we happen to be lucky enough to have a grant, but as a model going forward, the feedback was obtained on a regional basis. So all five towns submitted to a process that in one forum, residents from across the region, not just even the five towns, but Greater Hartford broadly defined that we'd solicit by posting information about the opportunity in grocery stores, in laundromats, um, in, in places that were consistent with the populations that we'd want to serve. We did have some limitations in terms of our ability to translate into other languages as we grow in this work, that's going to be incredibly important and to be able to have um, translation services. But the power of bringing everyone together across the region and compensating the work did a, a number of different things. One, the mere act of paying somebody for their time, and I'm sure all of you individually in your life have experience with, it feels so qualitatively different to move through a space when you've been compensated as opposed to when you're asked to volunteer. Um, so the entire quality of the interaction, I feel like was colored by compensation. Um, this idea of collecting feedback regionally. So um, I, as I mentioned, I, I live, I don't know that I mentioned this yet. I live in West Hartford. I mentioned that Catherine Diveny, who's with us is participating in this pilot and works in West Hartford. And um, I know someone on staff there at some point to make a point asked town council members, how many of you were born in West Hartford? And we could each ask ourselves, the towns that we live in, how many of us 
were born where we now live. Um, and as the statistics and I'm sure our personal narratives bear out, the answer is not many. So the importance of municipal governments soliciting information beyond town borders is critical because the model right now only supports hearing from the people who already live in your town, not from the people who necessarily work in your town and don't live in your town, the people who wish to live in your town, but for some reason don't or can't or won't. So we really need to think differently. Um, and geography is sometimes a barrier, compensation can solve that. So there's a lot of complexity in terms of how municipal government um, engages with the populations that serve and serves and compensation goes a long way to addressing and mitigating some of those needs. So Ashley, I don't, I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but. Oh no, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that, uh, one part of the process is we should be looking at our participants and for this affordable housing conversation we did, look at our participants as subject matter experts. Would you take on or welcome a, in a subject matter expert without paying them for their experience? Um, for the content that they bring to the table, for their perspective, for how they will inform your process or whatever. Because most of the time when we hire a subject matter expert or a professional, we say that value is already embedded in the outcome. We know we'll have a better outcome because of our engagement with this expert. But the same is the case for people with lived experience. Our outcomes, our affordable housing policies, our programs will be more effective, will be more successful with our engagement with these residents, these specific residents. So I hope that's a huge or a great pitch for why we should do this. Um, also, I hope you all have questions because there are definitely concerns. Uh, the five municipal, the five towns had concerns before we got started um, in the project and also there will be hurdles throughout the process, especially with starting something new. So bring those questions. We'll have some space to talk about it at the end. We'll return to our program in just a moment. You've been listening to The Impact, a sustainable CT podcast, brought to you in part by the good people at Connecticut Green Bank. The Connecticut Green Bank's mission is to confront climate change and provide all of society a healthier and more prosperous future by increasing and accelerating the flow of private capital into markets that energize the green economy. Go green, Connecticut Green Bank. So what makes an expert? How do we define expertise? Is it education? Professional status? The recommendation of peers? Presumably more than anything else, what defines an expert is a person who knows what they're talking about, yes? Let's get back to the program. Ashley, thank you so much. Um, so feel free, again, to either handwrite your questions or put them in the chat. We'll have a collective conversation at the end. We only have a little bit more formal content so that there's a lot of space for all of you. So Latha, I'm now going to turn it over to you. Yes, thank you. I wanted to start off with um, giving you an idea of what my division does and then also use a very specific example to describe how we value people's uh, time and knowledge in this specific process. So um, as I already mentioned, I'm Latha, I'm the director of the Food System Policy Division at the City of New Haven. And um, I'll give you a snapshot of um, New Haven really quickly, just in case people are not so familiar. Um, so, uh, many of you may know, but we are a small, diverse coastal city. Um, and there are, as in many other cities and municipalities, deep and enduring economic and social disparities that uh, cut across all issue areas. We have about 130,000 residents, roughly one third identify as black, one third as white, and one third as Hispanic Latinx. Median annual income is 38,000 as compared to 71,000 statewide. Half our residents are designated as low income and a quarter are living in poverty. So prior to COVID across New Haven, almost a quarter of the city's residents were food insecure. And that's much higher than 13% statewide and 11% nationwide. And as is true for most cities, um, these, um, uh, racial and ethnic disparities widen when we consider the 
low-income or disinvested neighborhoods in New Haven, which are predominantly black and brown. And um, when we look at these health disparities and uh, poverty rates and access to resources um, and ownership over resources, we can see that these um, factors exacerbate each other. Um, so prompted in part by this staggering data, um, a group of community food system advocates in New Haven lobbied the city of New Haven to successfully create the food system policy division in 2016. And that was made possible through funding from a foundation. So the city wasn't even paying for this. I came on board to lead the division at the end of 2018, just as the city incorporated it finally into its general fund budget. And for some of you, this may be the first time you're hearing about a role like this. And that's not a surprise. There are only 20, about 20 of us in the country. So there are only about 20 of us that focus on food and agricultural policy on the municipal level as city officials. And it's also important to note that since its inception and to this day, the division has never been allocated a programmatic budget from the city. However, in the last year, we're very proud to have been able to secure nearly 1 million in um, federal, straight, state, and private grants, which has allowed me to expand the team and also um, have resources behind living, you know, within, through our values and expanding our capacity and scope. So really quickly, our portfolio of work encompasses um, three main buckets and one cross-cutting bucket. So we are focused on um, urban ag and, um, growth and development. And we are very excited. This is what I'll talk a little bit more in detail about is we are one of the first ever recipients of two new grants from the USDA's new Office of Urban Ag and Innovative Production. We secured their competitive planning grant, which we are using to fund the development of New Haven's first urban ag master plan. And that was for half a million dollars. And this is important because this is where we're getting the money to compensate uh, community members. Um, we are also starting to ramp up our efforts in equitable food-oriented development. As I mentioned, it focuses on values-based institutional procurement and food-based businesses and entrepreneurs at all scales. We also have some budding work in population health policies around reducing equitably and at the population level, uh, sugar and salt um, consumption at the population level, not to dictate individual eating behaviors. And lastly, we're hoping to gather a lot more data and do more mapping across all of these. So now to the meaty part, um, I'll talk to you about the Urban Ag Master Plan. So for the master plan, we really care about um, functioning through our values. And um, New Haven, like many cities, has a pretty long history of urban ag with many of its community gardens starting in the 1980s. And this doesn't even include backyard gardeners and farmers and animal keepers. Um, so this Urban Ag Master Plan will be an actionable equity-oriented blueprint that will ultimately increase access to land and opportunities and guide urban ag's development and growth in New Haven. And we'll be creating it over the next two years through an inclusive community-led process. And it's co-led by our community advisory board of 60, six zero members of the community. So we do, uh, so in alignment with our guiding values, we established this 60 member urban ag community advisory board to co-lead this planning process alongside our division. All members are paid $25 an hour for up to 102 hours of their time throughout the entire process. So that's throughout uh, all two and a half years. And their primary uh, responsibility at this time is attending our monthly meetings and beginning next year or now actually, They'll help us with outreach by canvassing priority neighborhoods and to um, ensure all community members are able to participate and contribute to this process. Um, we currently have 54 members broken into four subgroups with different areas of expertise. The subgroups are neighborhood, urban farming, community health, and youth experts. And just a note on actually, you know, as I mentioned, this is funded by the USDA grant. We wrote in our grant that we are hiring experts and we explicitly, and this is just a perfect segue from what Ashley was talking about. We also, uh, you know, just because someone is a consultant and, you know, they have a biz, an LLC 
doesn't deny that someone who's been living in the neighborhood, farming in that neighborhood for 55 years, but may not have um, attained education beyond eighth grade, that they're not an expert too. I am sure none of us know what they know about growing in New Haven in that neighborhood. They are therefore an expert. So we wrote that they are experts in our um, grant. And to be quite honest, we were very explicit. For those who may know me, I do not shy away from being very transparent and explicit in how I communicate about a lot of these things about our values. And we wrote this in the USDA grant. This is the first grant we were applying for. And I was actually floored when they funded us as one of the three recipients in the country, because we were like, you know, USDA policies have, um, you know, created these circumstances. And we are trying to prevent gentrification. The urban ag um, uh, realm is very white dominant in New Haven. And we're going to pay people who are majority not white to be on a cab to actually share their time and knowledge because we value them just as much as some consultant with an LLC. And they funded us. So hopefully that means there's a turn in the USDA um, or we just slipped through. <laughs> um, and more on the cab. So the cab is multilingual. Uh, we have one French speaking and two Spanish speaking members. Language justice is important to our division and the application to the CAB and outreach materials were available in eight different languages. We had them translated to Spanish, English, French, Arabic, Swahili, Farsi, Mandarin, and Portuguese. And this is something the city of New Haven has absolutely never, ever, ever done. Um, we did it on our own with funding from this grant. Um, and we are largely internally a forgotten division. So it's not like we had to get like several layers of approval to do any of this. We just did it because we had the funding. Um, and one way that we did deep outreach is we actually, as a team of three, went on foot. We canvassed every single neighborhood with priority toward disinvested neighborhoods. Um, and we spent day, like weeks and months doing this for every neighborhood and we went to every door, we went to barber shops, hair salons, bodegas, um, restaurants and, um, you know, like uh, clothing stores, like very small uh, clothing stores and um, liquor stores, everything. Like we went everywhere and put flyers in all these eight languages. Um, the board is majority, uh, we use the term by PGM for black indigenous and people of the global maturity. Um, it, so it's like a counterpart to BIPOC, as some of you may have heard. Um, most camp members identify as Black, Afro-Caribbean, African, or African-American, followed by those who identify as Latino, Latinx, Chicana, Hispanic American, South Asian, and South Asian American. Um, with, as being a South Asian American, I am very excited that there's like other South Asian Americans that came out of the woodwork in New Haven to be a part of this. Um, biracial, multiracial, and Middle Eastern or Arab American. And over 50% of the CAP members are long-term residents, having lived here for more than 10 years. Most are residents from disinvested neighborhoods that we've prioritized both for outreach and involvement in this process. In terms of income diversity, 42% of members have low income, meaning their annual household income is less than 35,000. Um, we have significant representation from those who have experience with incarceration. Um, that's more than 50%. I think it's like 57. And um, last but not least, we have an amazing age representation, including one urban farming expert who is over 85 years old. So he's who I was thinking about when I said he has 55 years of experience. So I just wanted to give a lot of context on the cab, just because that's the point that by doing really intentional work and, um, you know, obviously we were lucky to get the resources, but it doesn't mean that we should just assume things are remaining the same, that we shouldn't uh, like boldly define our values and say, this is what needs to be compensated and valued. Because look, a federal agency gave us money for this. And other than hiring Kimberly onto my team, the entire rest of the money goes to community members, paying them for their time on the cab. Also, we're providing childcare services when we are able to meet in person and obviously the translation services and absolutely nothing like that's literally all the grant, the 500, the half a million is for her role and then entirely for community members. 
And I'm not sure how many people, um, you know, on this call feel that they can prioritize things or have the desire to do it like that. So I'll stop there. We'll return to our program in just a moment. A reminder that Sustainable CT Coffee Hours are held on the third Friday of most months at 10 a.m. A great time for a little pick-me-up, don't you think? Our next coffee hour, that's this week, March 18th at 10, is about all things Community Match Fund, and you don't want to miss that. We'll discuss how residents of registered communities can develop great project ideas that align with sustainable CT actions, the best practices in crowdsource funding, how to publicize your project to ensure the widest community involvement, and much more, with a special emphasis on amplifier funds that we have available in key project areas. The discussion will be led by our very own community outreach manager extraordinaire, Joseph Dickerson. So please join us for what is sure to be a fun, helpful, and informative hour. Register at sustainablect.org. So what exactly do we mean when we talk about compensation? How much should it be? Do goods and services in kind, like food, childcare, count? And who should be compensated, really? Even those who don't need it? Let's get back to the program. Lafa, thank you so much. And um, I'm, I'm sad you stopped there, but also delighted you did because we have <laughs> a lot to talk about and the chat is lighting up. So um, I'm going to go sort of up to the top and then people can chime in. You're yeah, ready. Can I say one little thing before. Of course, of course. The, between the affordable housing example that Alyssa and I described and Latha's work, like we have two huge different scale of projects still engaging with participants in this way. So one was a temporary project and Latha is talking about something long-term that will be knit into the community. Like very, very amazing examples, but it's what a range of what we could be doing between. Um, sorry, that was my first thought. No, that's great. Thank you. And others should raise hand and we'll make it organic and dynamic. But I'm going to combine a couple of questions that I see in the chat around both amount of payment, form of payment, and just defining this idea of what compensation is, because there's this idea of in an in-person event, things like transportation and childcare and providing food. So I definitely have some thoughts on that, but Ashley and Latha, I'd love it if you could both answer in terms of what, what does compensation mean? I'll frame the question that way. And form also, I'll throw that one into cash versus gift card versus all the different ways to that you can pay people. So I'm, I'm sure Lata has a ton to say, so I'll keep mine pretty brief. What I will say is I wouldn't obsess so much about the amount, um, but to be extremely thoughtful about why the amount. So in my own personal research, I paid my research participants for their ex for interviews, for their experience. It came up often people asking me, why did you put this amount on this? on this task or this uh, role. And what I will say is that it should speak, whatever the amount you decide on should speak value to your participants. It should be relevant or you should have in mind what the communities, I mean, Latha went through a ton of details about what people's income in the area, your target audience. And also what I will say is even if your target audience is um, in a poverty level that isn't reflective of your leadership, making sure there isn't a huge power dynamic across the table. So if they're working with a group of people that are all making, let's say on average, $50 an hour, they should not be the one they're making 15. Um, so just keeping in mind thoughtfulness to why you pick the numbers you pick. Um, and that's my two cents. Latha, I know I said you were going to go next, but just because Ashley and I worked on the same project, the only thing I wanted to add, just to, to add some specificity. So our, our specific work was time bounded. I feel like, um, you know, we all, we all experience that transition has a cost. So doing something short term should be compensated perhaps at a different level than something that's recurring because there's an activation energy to doing anything new. So we paid participants $150 
for participating in three evening sessions on Zoom that were about 90 minutes each. So it was $50 a session. For purposes of retention, we advertised that everyone would be paid at the end for attending all three sessions, but we also recognize our humanity. So anyone who couldn't attend all three, we paid them proportionally. If they were there for two of the three, they were paid a hundred and so on. Um, we did a lot of research borrowing from um, the world of, of IRB, Institutional Review Boards and Research Subjects. And um, we, in an ideal word, if we were in person, we would have handed them cash. We weren't, we were in a virtual setting. Um, so we used a vendor and sent everybody um, that a choice of electronic or hard copy, depending on whether they wanted to share our address with us. Um, they got Visa gift cards that were unrestricted in their use. Um, so Latha, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, I, I won't, I, because I talked for a while, I won't add too much, but I completely agree with what um, Ashley said about determining, you know, like doing an assessment of the landscape of understanding exactly like if everyone else is being paid $50 there, you know, just because it's 15 uh, doesn't mean that that's actually equitable. Um, we landed on $25 an hour for a participant. I actually had originally put, I think, maybe 75 or 50, but um, I actually talked to some colleagues who had uh, applied to other federal grants and um, I, you know, uh, compromised to 25, which is still technically a thriving wage for New Haven. I, I would want to move away from like living wage, um, which would be like, you know, as defined 15, um, but we were hoping to pay more. So we landed on 25. Um, and I was just, rec it was recommended to me to not try to push too hard with the hourly rate because then they'd reject the grant entirely. Um, and we do have community advisory board members who uh, um, have recused themselves from being paid because they have means uh, which was great. So we can redistribute that to translation and, and other things like that. Thank you both. Um, the last question that's formally in the chat, and then I want to start hearing live voices was around this idea of compensation in addition to things that are offered in person, like food, childcare, and transportation versus not. So there can be a variety of opinions. And all of this, I'm going to say, so I'm speaking grounded in the reality that I'm I'm not talking about how you would have to engage with your municipality to create budget space for this. We're just talking about a principled conversation. And my experience is that living our values and our principles is you then find the money to actualize them. So I'm not being dismissive of this idea that money is a barrier. It is, but that shouldn't be such a, a, a huge barrier that we don't engage in the conversation. So my response to that would be, um, and this has been echoed several times, that those with lived experience are experts as much as any other consultant. And in the same way, a municipality wouldn't expect a consultant to come to an evening meeting just because there was childcare and food there, um, that we, we treat our community members with the same respect as any other professional. And that if they're sitting at a table with people that are compensated, um, that they're compensated as well. So that's the ideal, not to say that the reality of implementing that isn't difficult. So um, with that, if your question wasn't answered, I'd love um, for you to lift it up with your own voice. And if there's more, more occurring to you, both in the way of questions, but also thoughts and challenges in doing this, I'd love to hear. And Deborah, I see your hand up. Hi, thanks, everybody. Um, this has been so uh, informative and enlightening. Um, I am um, a new extension professional with Connecticut Sea Grant, and I'm going to be working on a needs assessment for um, coastal communities in the western part of the state um, this coming spring and summer. And we're planning it now. And I've thrown out the idea of compensation and I'm trying to learn more about it. I've only known it through, um, you know, some hearsay examples where, where I used to work before. So, um, so this is a great, this is really helpful to like see concrete examples and learn about little mechanics. And I really wanna learn more. And so some people mentioned resources. Um, so I was wondering, you know, because in this case, I don't think I'm gonna have time to apply for new funding that would come in in time. I will, you know, I'm gonna see what we can do with our existing budget, but um, I guess, um, you know, where can you, 
point me for like what you other resources that I could use to help sell the idea and dig in more um, on my own, like other examples you might know of that I could look into. Latha and Ashley, I'm, I'm going to turn to you. Okay. Yeah. First. I was wondering why she muted herself. I'm like, mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there actually, there, there's some resources and there's a lot of conversations going on among municipal officials. Um, one place that, I know of a, some um, resources like toolkits and just kind of like uh, justifications for this. If you need to provide justification or like evidence to anyone that you're working with. Um, another thing which, um, you know, I can, I actually just saw a post this morning about it and I was like, oh, hey, look, it's so relevant. Um, the city of New Haven just became a member of the Government Alliance for Research and Engagement, GARE. And um, GARE, you know, as you can tell from the um, name, is focused on um, equity and, and diversity. And um, we, there, uh, there are a lot of uh, forum posts on um, getting guidance around compensating community members and how to form like community boards. So I could easily also see if there are any like resources that I don't know of, like circulating in one of those and send them maybe to Alyssa to send out. That sounds great. Thank you. Academ academia has not done enough of this. So mm -hmm. we are on the just the beginning of academia starting to pay for participants, especially in research, um, because they think just like municipalities, this is a knowledge is free or something. Um, so I don't have any like specific resources, but what I can do is share them with Alyssa and um, if I do find any. Was it you who said you went through an IRB? Yeah, I did. Okay. Well, I did through my own, my research was with Yale. Mm -hmm. So I just finished my research last year and I paid my participants through my research. I had to go through IRB for it too. Okay, because we have to get um, an IRB too through UConn. Um, yep. So, um, so part of part of the concern with IRB, similar to the municipality, is there was this idea that it might be considered a bribe. Mm, um, oh, that compensation could be so much that it would be bribing people for certain results or something. Um, and it makes me laugh because I don't know how thirty dollars an hour tempts anybody to do anything. But, um, but I think addressing that concern will be important why is it uh, an accurate amount or a reasonable amount that isn't so outrageous that it would just be like, yeah, I don't know. I, I had to address that in my research proposals. Okay, that's helpful to know. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. So I wanna push you all a, a little bit. So you're all self-selected. You're here because you care about this, but this is really difficult. So I'd like, I want you all, this is a space of honesty, push back a little bit because my biggest question is, what are the bounds around this, right? Everyone who shows up to a town meeting has expertise. Um, we all have our lived experience. Nobody knows what their experience of living in their neighborhood is like. And who are we to decide that somebody's in one economic situation versus another is worthy of compensation versus not? This gets very complicated. So I wonder if we could all be safe and grapple together a little bit because it's great to, to sit from this space of both Ashley and I and Latha got grants, but we're proposing a shift in municipal government in terms of thinking about how you all do this. Um, so I wanna hear what feels hard and what questions you have, and let's all use each other to think what, what first steps might look like that are actually realistic in your contexts. What we don't want to happen, I have an idea. <laughs> What we don't want to happen is for you all to get in your committee meetings and say, these people are really poor, we should pay them. Um, awkward. <laughs> or we know that they're going through hard times. Look at their mother, their, their caregiver. So let's pay them. So let's bring back the humanity of it, the value of it, respecting the work um, and remembering that and not just, oh, who's poor, who's not. Um, I'm not poor, so don't pay me, that kind of thing. And I've often taken the, 
fee because not because I want the money, but because I know we need to keep the system the way it is. Um, so yeah, that just comes up in my mind as like just a flag. Julia, hey. Hey there. Um, yeah, I, I just to build on what Ashley was saying, I work, I work in healthcare and I'm also a consultant and I'm also a patient. And so I sit on both sides of those issues um, in that I often um, volunteer and participate in panels and discussions to share my experience with my disease. Um, and I also am a health educator. And so I'm often in a position of recruiting people and uh, paying them for their time. And through like my own work and more discussion about um, equity, but more specifically about to build on what Ashley was saying, just respecting other people. It's not about rich or poor. It's about um, acknowledging someone's time and effort. Um, I do see in the, in the town that I'm in uh, part-time that there is also this incredible gender bias um, if we think about volunteerism, and I'm also volunteer for about three different organizations and committees, it's, it's significantly women and it's significantly seniors. Um, and so there's this, this undermining or this sense of, oh, you have the time um, or your time is not meaningful. Well, I get paid a pretty decent amount of money per hour to consult for pharmaceutical companies um, and um, so my giving up my time to, to, because I care doesn't mean it's not a value. So I think to comment, I feel like it's, it's not an overnight solution. We have to keep at the conversation of respecting other people, um, of, of acknowledging their worth. And I'm particularly bent on any conversation, any committee, any group that one participates in I don't feel like we do enough of, and it's even harder on Zoom, to say, this is who I am. This is where, what my experiences are. This is my professional and or my lived experience. Um, I feel like we come to meetings and we all of a sudden start talking. It's like, wait a minute, how do I know what you bring to the table? For me to be able to say, oh, Ashley, can you talk about such and such? Because I understand you have a background in it. How do I know if I don't, if we don't, bring that out. So I don't know, I feel like on multiple levels, we need to, to do a better job and keep on saying to the same old, same old folk who love to do things the way it's been, that, you know, that there, there are reasons to, to change that. And it's good for everybody. There's my soapbox. <laughs> you know? Julia, thank you. <laughs> Who else? Who else has things to say about this? And um, particularly those of you that might feel like you're struggling with a next step, use this as your support group. I'm, I'm, so I'm going to say something. So <laughs> <laughs> I like to fill with words. No, I just wanted to quickly mention that, yeah, I agree with what Ashley said about, you know, not, it, it becomes a, infantilizing thing or a uh, paternalistic thing to be like to, to assign worth and value through compensation if done in this like icky way of saying like oh I I evaluate you as poor so you get compensation and uh, just as an example for me um, I think people are surprised when I give uh, talks at panels um, people are surprised that I ask for a compensation and I'm going to ask for a comp just because I have a job and, you know, doesn't mean that I haven't been undervalued and I continue to be undervalued, been in situations where compensation is, uh, offered to other panelists and not me. And, um, or for example, would you ever like, if there's some 30 year career old white man, in the same field, would you even dream of not uh, ask, like asking him without saying, oh, we will pay you for your time? No. So you're going to pay me like him. That's what I say. <laughs> so, you know, they'll be like, we'll give you $200 for this panel. And I'm like, I have been doing panels for a thousand plus. So I'm not doing it unless you give me this much money. I'm just like giving examples. But um, 
it's even it, even for me, right? Um, and there are a lot of factors there. People think I'm because of the way that I look. I'm extremely young. I'm much older than people think that I am. Um, they think that I have no experience. Well, I started my career when I was 18 because I went to college when I was 14. Like, you don't know what my background is. I probably have more experience than the person that's uh, older than me in some of these fields. So yeah, I'm, I'm here to get my coins too. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're one minute to 11. So I want to, I want to start wrapping this up in a formal way. And then those who want to stay on are certainly welcome to do so. So the the inherent message of all of this is everyone has value, which I think we all know intuitively. We all want to behave in, a, in the world and move through the world in such a way that we recognize everyone's value and we falter and make mistakes because we're human and we're all here and we're trying to wake up and do better. Um, and with that, I want to put um, a link. I just stuck it in. If you haven't seen this yet, it's a New York Times opinion piece that I just found completely beautiful. So for those of you who don't know, my faith is very important to me. I identify as Jewish. Um, this article was written by a rabbi with lupus and his struggle in understanding how to move in a world where productivity and constant doing is what's valued and his illness doesn't allow for that. And for those who have time to stay on because it's 11 o'clock right now, I want to read just a couple of quick paragraphs from it because um, it's really important and I think germane to this work. So I'll read. The English word lazy is derived from the German leish, meaning weak or feeble, and the Old Norse lesu, meaning false or evil. Devin Price, a sociologist who studies laziness, remarks that these two origins capture the double speak built into the concept. When we call people lazy, including ourselves, we're often pointing out that they're too tired and weak to be productive, while often simultaneously accusing them of faking feebleness to get out of work or for malevolent purposes. As Price puts it, the idea that lazy people are evil fakers who deserve to suffer has been embedded in the word since the very start. Shunning laziness is integral to the American dream. The Puritans who colonized New England believed that laziness led to damnation and used this theology to justify their enslavement of Black people whose souls they claimed they had, quote, saved by turning them into productive laborers. This view has endured in American culture and hundreds of years later, working to the point of self-harm to build a boss's wealth is still lauded as a good work ethic in America. And the word lazy is still connected to racism and injustice. When in fact, it's poor, unhoused, young, black, brown, mentally ill, fat, and chronically sick people who are most often accused of sloth, we rarely hear about lazy billionaires, no matter how much of their fortune is inherited. So that's a teaser um, for you to take a look at the rest of the article. It's beautiful. So one, go forth and enjoy your weekend and celebrate being lazy. You all work very hard. And two, take with you um, this idea of everybody's productivity and worth and overcoming these stereotypes of populations who have tremendous value, expertise, and are, are worthy of compensation. So be well and thank you, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed today's edition of The Impact, a sustainable CT podcast. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our sponsors, the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation and the Connecticut Green Bank. And thanks to everyone for taking local actions that have a statewide impact.